Don't you wanna die happy with a smile on your face? Wake up a laughing, <laughs> cause you're free of all the things that would hold you from your ocean view. Life's a landscape. Why don't you bathe in your way? Dr. Jaffe, I presume. How are you? Hey, Martin, how are you doing? Really good, thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. So excited to be here. Yeah, we are. We're honoured. I must say, we're we're, we're honoured. I, I feel as though we're 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 amongst uh, addiction treatment royalty. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that from this side, but I, I appreciate the kudos. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, likewise, we appreciate your humility. Then, in that case, so there's lots of ways we could start this conversation. I thought we might just jump into something light and easy. What's Addy Jaffe's definition of addiction. Hmm. Yeah, really, really good question. Um, I look at addiction as any compulsive behavior that is leading to negative consequences in life. And I guess then I'll define what compulsive means and and um, what negative consequences might mean. You know, compulsive to me means that at some point you have thought to yourself, I don't want to be doing this like this anymore. And you haven't managed to turn it around on your own. And and the reason I say compulsive in that sense is, you know, some people will say, I'm addicted to this TV show or I'm addicted to hamburgers or I'm addicted to fries. And my first question is, well, have you ever tried to not do it? And if somebody says no, then I'm, I'm like, then you're not addicted, right? Because... I think there has to be this part where there's a compulsion to you. So that's one thing. And the second piece has to be negative consequences. Um, and that for me came out of the concept, I think this is a decade ago, but somebody in the space said to me, well, you know, people can get addicted to anything. And that's obviously patently false, by the way. Um, my joke response, my lighthearted joke response for that is, I've never met anybody addicted to sand, let's say, or yeah. anybody addicted to... Um, you know, poison ivy leaves or anything like that. The people get addicted to things for a specific reason. So it's not the entire universe that is feasible. And again, I only define it as addiction if it's been causing repetitive negative consequences in your life and you've tried to stop because of those and haven't been able to. So that still includes a lot of behaviors, a lot of use, a lot of um, potential outcomes, but that's my definition. I thought it'd be an interesting point to start the conversation because I, I as a recovered addict, I, 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 I think you and I share a lot of similar views. And in fact, well, it's obviously how, I st- how we're having this conversation because it was you that put me on, to, it was Jules that put me on to you, I think, yeah. in the first place, wasn't it? Um, and, and you were saying some things that I, I guess some of the establishment would consider to be controversial. But, but, it, but, it, but it resonated with me because I, I uh, early doors, it was only, when I've been sober four and a, four and a bit years now. Congratulations. Uh, I never went to AA. Thank you, man. Uh, I, I never went to AA, and we'll talk about my journey at some sure, point sure. in this conversation. Mine was, a, mine, was a, mine was an alternative, alternative journey using <laughs> ayahuasca plant medicine. Love it. Um, but I came across um, some people in the, in the AA circuit who found it very difficult to 
accept my story, which I found kind of really bizarre and, and, and interesting because they, uh, and I had at least two people say, well, you obviously weren't an addict, were you? I've heard that before. I've heard that before. <laughs> and I wonder what you um, might have to say about that. No, go ahead. Finish the story. I want to, I want to, but I have a story follow up of my own. Well, well, yeah. So essentially having been challenged to identify as an addict, and this was all new to me because, of course, I'd not attended uh, AA or NA. I actually wind, wound up doing it um, not too long after this because I was volunteering at a rehab. And uh, so I had to take the clients. It was a, it was a traditional 30-day residential rehab, and it was um, you know, the, the, the 12 Steps program. So I ended up taking clients to NA and AA, where, and this was my first experience, out with of watching it on the TV or in the movies, right, you know, where everybody has to say, hi, my name is Martin, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm, I'm, Mar I'm Martin, I'm an alcoholic and addict. And I watched everyone do this time after time again, and, and I, I, I always really struggled with it. i got to say, it was a, it, for me, it felt odd to identify with mm. my past almost to to drag my past along despite the fact that i was actually moving away sure. and i was already sober two two years sober at the time um so yeah to hear you talk about a really clear definition is in encouraging but then i i think i'm right in saying you also don't you prefer not to identify as as being a, in recovery. Yeah, right? I mean, look, recovery can be broad, right? I, I I was in a motorcycle accident, broke my leg. I was in recovery from that for years. I didn't walk for a year, right? So I was in a wheelchair first, and then I was on crutches, and then I used a cane. I was in recovery from my broken leg for over a year, and then I think I walked with a cane for almost a whole other year. But when I was done with that, I was no longer in recovery from my broken leg. Right? I still have a leg; it was still broken. You can very easily see where the screws used to be. Like the scars are still there. Um, but I'm not going to say that I'm in recovery from my broken leg anymore. Some things are more fluid than that, I would say, right? So that's, I look, mental health in general, forget addiction for a second, is a bizarre, weird kind of sideshow to mental health. We all have mental well-being on an ongoing basis. Everybody listening to this right now, if I gave you a scale 0 to 100 or 1 to 10 or pick your poison, right? you'd be able to give me a rough estimate of how you're doing in terms of your general mental well-being. For some reason, we've decided at some point that the people who struggle with addiction are in a separate box. They're not like the other people. Um, we, we give them names. They're addicts, junkies, alcoholics. Um, and once you get defined as that, you actually don't ever get to leave that box. You are now that. You could be that in recovery. By the way, even in the 12, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it does say we've recovered. So even in that book, which everybody keeps touting, they forget the parts where they say that you reach a point where you have recovered. You're no longer in recovery. But that's okay. Maybe some of them just need to read the book more. But, you know, that, that line is still we're recovered alcoholics, right? So it's not like, you're recovered and you get to remove the alcoholic label. You still wear the label, but you're just a recovered alcoholic. So it's like you could be an untreated alcoholic. You can be a alcoholic in recovery. You can be a recovering alcoholic. And then eventually you can be a recovered alcoholic, which is kind of weird um, in a way, right? You, you have to hold on to that label for the rest of your life. And I had the same struggle with having to 
um, identify. I got taken to very, very strict AA meetings when I was in recovery early on. And my drug of choice, by the way, it was meth. So I definitely went through incredibly heavy drinking mm-hmm. periods, don't get me wrong, and through incredibly heavy marijuana smoking periods. And then I used a lot of ecstasy and I used a lot of LSD and I used a lot of marshmallows. I used a lot of a lot of drugs. Meth was the thing that I had no control over. That's the one that just took me down. So I go to rehab as a meth addict. That's the, I can tell the story of how I became to know that that's what I'm supposed to call myself. But then I would go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and I had mm-hmm. to identify as an alcoholic. They wouldn't let me identify as an addict even because alcoholics go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I was like, but I don't drink. Literally, when I walked into an AA meeting, I was recover- where I needed to fix my meth addiction at the time, but I hadn't had more than four sips of an alcoholic drink in probably four to five years. And so talk about a, having to pretzel yourself into the one-size-fits-all solution. I walk in not having drank anything, and these people are telling me, well, you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, well, I don't drink, so how could I be an alcoholic? So it started not making sense for me from a very, very early um, standpoint. And I, I want to share the story that I think explains, and you reminded me when you were talking about Ashley Martin, because I haven't told this story in at least five years. I used to tell it a lot early in my um, experience, but I haven't told it in forever, and you just remind me of it. So this is probably the origin of where I realized I was going to have to go prove to people that there's another way. I was addicted. I committed many, many crimes under the influence of uh, drugs and also sold drugs for a living. So I ended up having to go to jail, a SWAT team arrest, the whole thing. Had to go to rehab while I was fighting the case. I mean, it was, yeah, it was it was not a pretty scene in my life at the time. I weighed 124 pounds. I'm 165 now, right? I was 40 pounds lighter than I am right now. I was like a skeleton. Um, got arrested, went to rehab, failed out of the first rehab uh, for using. I used meth in that rehab for two months while living there. Um Ended up getting my act straight with the second rehab, recognizing that if I don't do this, I'm going to end up in prison for 10 to 13 years. That's about what I was facing. And that that's what kept me on the straight and narrow. Went to jail, got a year in jail and got out. Couldn't get a job to save my life. And that is what brought me back to school. So that's just the background. Couldn't quit. I mean, I kept trying to quit on my own. Nothing worked. SWAT team rehab barely made it. I'm out and I can't get a job. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if a SWAT team can't uh, can't dissuade you from your addiction, then I think it's safe to say that you fit the uh, you fit the definition of having a problem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I I tried probably about seven or eight times to stop on my own. Didn't work. That was my fourth arrest, by the way. It was not my first arrest. Um, but this time, I mean, full on, get up. You know, heads over your head. The whole screaming. You've seen this in the, in the TV shows. Eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I'm passed out. There's a meth pipe next to my bed. Um, I used GHB at the time to fall asleep because you can't fall asleep on meth. So I would take GHB to fall asleep, wake up, start using meth. That was my life. Um, I had a gun next to my bed. Thank God I didn't reach for that because if I had, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. As you know, American cops are very quick to fire. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't give them a reason. Went to Ended up in jail for a year. And when I got out, I couldn't get a job. That's why I went back to school. So I'm back in school getting my master's degree. I barely eked out my undergrad. And I'm going to get my my master's now um, in psychology. Uh, 
I'd already been through rehab. I'd already been through jail. I'm now, I think I've been about two and a half years sober. And I start studying psychology on a really, really deep level. And as I'm learning things, something in my head goes, you know, this is different than the rehab conversation. The conversation they were having with me in rehab about what's going on with me is very different than this conversation. But it didn't sink in quite yet. When you go to graduate school, you do research. I had an amazing advisor, Dennis Fisher, who showed me the ropes, taught me how to be a researcher and how to do graduate school right. And he was studying addiction. That's the only reason I was even studying addiction. He was studying drug use in HIV positive homeless people. And so I, that's the research I got involved in and I got really, really deep into it. That's what got me really focused on studying addiction. We got this poster accepted for the American Public Health Association meeting and I was so excited. Right, I went from a meth dealer in Los Angeles facing like 13 years in prison, barely getting out of rehab, serving a year, and jail sucks. I mean, it's hard to explain how terrible jail is if you've never been there, but it's the only place where you can be scared and bored at the exact same time, and that's just the state you live in. You're like in <laughs> constant fear, and you can't wait for it to end. Man. Um, so we go to this conference. And in the conference, I had a poster accepted. If anybody's ever done academics, you know it's like it's a massive piece of paper with all your research sort of laid out and on, with it on graphs and all this kind of stuff. And I go to present my research, and I'm doing it. I'm walking around and seeing other people's research. And there was a woman. This is in Washington, D.C. I'll never forget it. There was a woman with a little table set up. She was from the local AA chapter. Now, I'm really excited. I'm you know, a year out of jail. I think at this point I was two years out of jail. Uh, I'm moving forward in my life. I'm almost finishing grad school. I'm in DC presenting my own research, like mind blown. I never thought I would be here, right? Caveat, I wasn't fully sober anymore. I'd started drinking again. So I'm having this conversation with this woman. Oh, you know, I used to go to AA, all this stuff. She goes, oh, what made you stop going to AA? I said, well, you know, I'm going to graduate school and I was just, Really just got really busy and I'm studying psychology. And also, you know, I've started moderately drinking again and I just didn't feel like it would be a good fit. And she looks at me in a split second. She hands me a card and she says, we'll save a seat for you. And I was like, I, but I don't need a seat. I'm good. And the only way she could look at my story is that I was an alcoholic and I was relapsing and unless I get back to AA, I'm gonna die. That's the only version of the story she could see. Mm. And I was so shaken up by that experience because before that conversation, I was, I was good. I was persuaded I was, I was on the right track and there was so much fear and so much of that pull about, oh my God, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm crazy and all this stuff that kind of came up because of her reaction, that it, it really, really shook me. Um, and I got it, you know, it's now, what was that? That was 2004, 2005. It's 18 years later. I'm still moderating successfully, by the way, anybody who's listening. I'm good. I don't need a seat anymore. By the way, I could end up being wrong in 10 years and, and need help. I don't know, right? I don't have a crystal ball. But that story in that moment made me go, shit nobody thinks there's another way of doing this they think there's only one way of succeeding 
And I think that's what kind of took me on my path. Mm, thanks for sharing yeah. that. And that's something that we, when I originally came across you, that alternative perspective on um, addiction and alcoholism is what really interested me in what you were doing. And that's why I passed you on to Martin, because I thought you'd be really interested in seeing this alternative alternative mm. view. Um, we'd love to know a little bit more about that alternative perspective and also what makes Ignited different. Sure. I want to hear about the ayahuasca ceremony at some point. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. And anybody who's not in the addiction field thinks what I'm about to say is obvious. And until recently, I'll say until the last five to seven years, most people in the addiction field thought I was insane for saying this out loud. Have you been vilified for it publicly? Oof. When we started out, so I ran a rehab, an outpatient rehab with a, a co-founder. We started in, I think it was eight, nine years ago, no, 2013, 10 years ago, almost, almost 10 years ago. Um, we would get hate phone calls because we would, you know, they do PR on us or something like that, a story in the news. And we would get phone calls, people screaming at us on the phone that we're going to kill people. Um, and honestly, when we started, we probably got at least a couple a week. Man. And then once you go online, it's everywhere. I mean, so there was a very long while where any ad we ran or anything like that would be immediately looked at as a, a money grab. And and just I just want to tell everybody, it's not that I wouldn't like to make money in what I do. I've lost money doing this for the last eight years of my life. So if anybody thinks this is a money grab, it's a really <laughs> bad one. <laughs> just to be very clear, right? I haven't even broken even. It's lost money. But here's the gist you were asking Jules. So I'll just kind of give a really broad view and then we'll dig in through the rest of this. Addiction is not about the behavior that you came in for. It never is. Slight exception that happens in single digit percentages are people who got medicated for pain and got a dependency on opioids that they were unable to kick. But I would argue even in the majority of those cases, not all, but in the majority of those cases, there are underlying reasons why the pain relief was so powerful that just getting over the withdrawal alone was too painful. So that's my take. And, you know, I'll, we'll, I don't know, we can debate it, but that's sort of the vast majority, over 90% of people who ever find themselves addicted, the end behavior is just a symptom of an underlying issue. I think that sounds obvious to anybody who's ever known anybody who's addicted. But somehow in between holy shit, life sucks, I don't know what to do, oh crap, alcohol makes me feel better, okay, I'll just drink more on the weekends and everything will be fine because I hate my job, my relationship, the, my self-esteem, the trauma I went through, whatever that is. Well, now I'm drinking a lot on the weekend and I feel kind of shitty on Monday, I'll just drink a little bit on Monday. And kind of By the time that becomes a daily thing or a heavy-duty weekend thing, somewhere in the time between that, when that starts and when somebody goes to look for help, which by the way, on average is 15 to 20 years, mm -hmm. Somewhere in that range, the vast majority of people forget why they started doing the thing. Because it's worked so well for so long and it's helped them function despite that pain, despite the strife, despite the trauma, despite the environmental stressors, whatever it is. It's worked so well, they take it for granted that the pain has been gone, but it hasn't been touched. It's just that you have a really great salve. 
you've had a salve that has worked really, really well for 15 years. But if for 15 years something worked and then it stops working, you go, what the hell is, why is alcohol not working for me anymore? And you start looking at the alcohol. But it was never the alcohol in the first place. So for me, the story was I had a lot of social anxiety. I was awkward around girls. I, I know all the stories that led to this now after a lot of it, my own work. But I felt lacking in confidence, really low self-esteem, didn't feel manly enough for the guys, didn't feel like the girls wanted me. And, like, and it left me in this really bizarre, nobody thought I was socially anxious, but inside an ongoing war constantly. And then at a sleepaway camp, somebody handed me a bottle of vodka. I took three or four swigs of that thing, and I did, it, it was disgusting. It was warm. I wanted to throw up, but I can't throw up because then I'll look even less cool around all these people I barely know. So I drank like three or four of these swigs, and 15 minutes later, I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. I didn't even know I had a problem, but all of a sudden, I felt really good. Alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. I started drinking every weekend, eventually weed came in, etc. But my social anxiety was never helped because I never had to deal with it. I would just drink it away. So years and years later, I still had to figure out how to deal with my social anxiety. And that is my very lightweight example. I don't have big T trauma. Um, but that's what's really happening, right? We need to go back to the core issues. We need to help people feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable with us because half the time they don't even remember what happened and they definitely don't give it the gravity that it deserves. You know, to them, it's just the story of their life. It's not trauma. It's just what happened. And we need to hold their hand, make it easy and comfortable to discuss all the things that happened. So that's the psychology piece. Understand the environmental influences involved. You know, really do deep inquiry with who they are as a human being. And then support them as they try to start relying less and less on those crutches, less and less on those salves and band-aids that they've put together to be able to deal with their pain. And that's and that's where the abstinence myth concept has come from. Then I guess, isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> what you're what you're saying is that you don't. It's not. You don't need to rely on abstinence. You need to re rely on doing the the deep the deep root trauma work and as a result of doing that successfully then ultimately you suddenly rely less on substances is that about right have i just summed up a whole book in uh, <laughs> paraphrased you <laughs> yeah no 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 you've got it right you've got it right i mean the, the reason the book is called the abstinence myth is two reasons we think people have to be able to commit to abstinence as they go to enter treatment right like you have to know that you want abstinence and then we measure success by abstinence. Mm. And both of those have to go. For very simple reasons, by the way. Number one, most people are not willing to commit to abstinence. That's it. I, I don't want to even argue about whether abstinence is the right goal for them or not. If they're not engaging in care, they're, ne they're not getting the help they need. And the example I use for this that always gets the point across is Imagine if you went to a therapist, you were having a lot of depressive episodes, you were having a hard time getting out of bed, getting a job, holding a relationship, whatever. And you went to a therapist and they were really, really amazing at helping people fix depression. And, and you come in, they say, look, we did our intake interview. You seem like a really good fit for what we do here. I just want you to know if I'm going to take you on as a client, I just need you to commit that you're not going to be depressed anymore. 
because I can't treat you if you're going to get depressed. <laughs> That's an interesting way to hear it. That's a good, it's a good perspective. Insane. Yeah. Would you mind not being depressed? Does, doesn't that sound insane? <laughs> yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Does. So we take people who cannot stop drinking and we tell them, look, we, I just need you to commit to not drinking. And they go, fucking, that's the heart. That's the thing I can't do. That's literally the thing I can't do. Because if I don't drink, now think back to what we talked about earlier. If I don't drink, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, the trauma comes back, my life is a fucking mess. It doesn't get better. It's a nightmare when I don't drink. And so I say, we have one rule at Ignited. We will give you help if and only if you want help. That's it. That's the only rule. If you don't want help, we're not the ones for you. But if you want help, we're here. And by the way, I'll just say it. It's in the book. I'm not making this up. People read the book and they think I'm trying to get people to continue drinking and, and not addictively. No, I think abstinence is a wonderful goal. I'm just not going to make it a condition of giving you help. Yeah, yeah. How did I have So I just finished reading your your book and um, obviously been checking you out, watching your TEDx talks and so on and so forth which has all been incredibly inspiring but it's it's triggered something in me i i think a, a debate um which i was having with jules just last night my recovery story i was i i was a hard drinker probably actually for 20 years if i'm honest um certainly for yeah certainly for 15 to 10 there were some there were some really hardcore drinking times but in my mid 20s i discovered cocaine and in the advertising industry, you know the, those two things go together, right? And um, and I I hit the I hit the white stuff hard, and uh, I had a love love hate relationship with it as 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 we all do, right? Um, and it took me a long time to finally accept that this trail of destruction behind me, and we're talking decades of failed relationships, both romantic, personal professional the whole shebang everyone else seemed to well not everyone else because we've all got issues right but many many other people in my life seem to be having a, a far more rosy time of it while I was constantly blaming everything that had happened to me on everybody else and it was a uh, it, it was actually a, a, a drunken afternoon slash evening that resulted in a smashed laptop a torn knee ligament some holes in a hotel wall and me having to do a presentation to 20 people two hours after waking up to this that was kind of, i think that was my big wake-up call um and that was when i started the the path to stopping drinking but but i i did i did therapy and that really really helped me but i still put my absolute abstinence down to ayahuasca down to plant medicine and and not just one ceremony i've probably done 11 or 12 ayahuasca ceremonies and i've worked with uh, psilocybin as well done some some pretty interesting psychonautical work with mushrooms um and i'd love to talk to you about your perspective on on those sort of treatments because of course as we know yeah 100 that research is exploding now to treat uh, PTSD sure. and trauma. So by the way, I mean, I just want to say this, and I think it's obvious, but 
in the classic sense of the word, you're not sober, right? In the classic sense, mm. exactly. Yeah. And and because you've used mind-altering substances, right? And and what uh, many people will term drugs. Uh, yeah. So, by the way, I say that with zero judgment. I just want to get clear, and and, and people have helped me clarify that because I think. You were saying that you and Jules were having a, a discussion that came up after reading the book, mm. and, and I think I know where it's going, but I'd love to hear you yeah, saying thank, it first, and then we can dig into yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for bringing me back on track. So, so I've spent over four years completely sober, never touched a drop. I've still worked with mushrooms, I've still worked with ayahuasca, I've worked with San Pedro cactus, I've worked with Changa DMT in the uh, Cusco Hills in, in an Inca temple, which was one of the most profound... Um, experiences I've ever had in my life and I've it's never occurred to me to drink again this is obviously one of the the byproducts of, of working with plant medicine because as as you likely already know uh, many people will will liken one or two ayahuasca ceremonies to, to 10 or 20 years of therapy kind of kind of sucks if you're a, if you're a therapist I suppose in a way uh, depending on your don't worry, we have enough clients. We're not running out of clients yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you're going to be short of people. No, we're uh, fine. And because of course, there's a there's a huge fear factor around working with these medicines as well. So you, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's it, you've you've to you've to take a giant leap, and you're not just taking a a physical leap because the the physical experiences can be quite taxing on the body. It's um, it's a cosmic slap and uh, a very big one yeah huge one right <laughs> and, and in that process and obviously everybody has different experiences it's very difficult to 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 map out what a, an ayahuasca journey is like but most people certainly those carrying trauma as i had i, I my mother was an alcoholic i grew up in a in a uh, an unhappy home had intimacy issues from a very young age there was violence in the family um and she obviously physical. had deep deep struggles right i mean beyond the drinking there were there was a lot yeah. for her in life yeah exactly and she was a teacher she was a teaching mm. kids uh of around four or five so really and in in um a very underprivileged school as well so she was having to deal with a lot interesting because i never really took any of that on board until after she mm. died and her dying incidentally was part and parcel of this melting pot of what happened to me because sure. suddenly I was presented with my previous life story, a long list of regrets mm. uh, and shame for not having resolved any of these issues with her. And then she's gone, mm. yeah. which is part inspiration for the How to Die Happy podcast, right? Because we talk about people having um, long lists of deathbed regrets. Mm. Anyway, getting back on piste. So, so the debate I've been having recently is I wonder what would happen if I had a, a beer or a glass of wine? And I saw something you posted on Instagram the other day to say, you, you may be a six-pack on the weekend kind of guy these days. That's, that's your limit. And Me? so we were having this discussion. Well, my limit. and yeah. It, yeah. So the reason I say that, and we'll get much more deeply into this, because my drinking has definitely waxed and waned over the years, but um, I have a pretty hard limit of three drinks when I drink. But I got to tell you nowadays, I don't remember the last time I hit that limit. Mm. Um, and so the reason I said that is when I was drinking, I don't drink that much at all anymore. But when I was drinking even moderately and regularly, 
three drinks was my limit. And so if I would like drink on the weekend, there'd be like six drinks and that would be it. But that's that's a very rare occurrence now. And we can talk more about that later, but I just wanted to clarify. No, no, thanks for that clarity. Um, And for me, I suppose, I don't know. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it's an inherent fear. Is that still in me somewhere? I feel like it's not, I feel like I've done the work. Uh, I've, I feel fully healed of my addiction, but is it still in there? And if I had a, a beer, would that lead to 10? Mm. Um, yeah. If I had a glass of wine, would that lead to two bottles? Or, or would I have the, would I have the, the, the understanding now of, of what the alcohol did for me? why I was using it, right? And I, I, I already know the answer to it. And I think actually the answer is I, I could take a drink now. Um, but then the debate we were having really was around, well, what, what benefits does drinking alcohol have? <laughs> and I think, I think that's an important <laughs> distinction. So let me, I, I want to just, I think there's so much um, to unpack here. Um, First of all, I think the important thing to think about always is what was the benefit of alcohol for you, right? Like we have to start there because alcohol gave you something when you were drinking a lot. And we can try to have this discussion without understanding what that is, but then we're kind of hiding from the reason why it ever became a problem. So do you know right off the bat, why did you like drinking? And we can go into cocaine as well, but why did you like drinking so much? I think they were both, uh, they both provided superpowers. And uh, I, so I think similarly to, to, part, to your story, I was very um, extrovert, but I, I now realize in later, later life that I'm actually an, an introvert, extrovert. Hmm. Um, so I needed uh, or I enjoyed the superpower that uh, a few beers, the beer buzz or the cocaine buzz would give me. But more than that, I realized that actually I was deeply, deeply unhappy. Part of my story resulted with a loaded shotgun to my face. And I, I was this close off not having this podcast interview with you. And uh, bizarrely, my beagle saved my life stopped me from uh, stopped me from killing myself and i realized through this uh, through doing the work and that the the inward um retrospective review the shadow work everything everything that comes with healing right sure. that i was deeply unhappy and i wore several masks facades of of uh, pretend happiness and i had a different facade for that person different one for that person, different one mm. for this, this person. There's a people pleaser. And ultimately, actually, I think a lot of it came down to, to a lack of intimacy and attention as a child. So, <laughs> I mean, obviously, we can't really unpack it all in a, in a short podcast conversation. But, um, but I think that alcohol and, and, and cocaine gave me that superpower. Love it. Thank you for, thank you for the vulnerability. Um, no worries. So... Here's what I would say, and and we can do this in layers, right? I would say that if none of that is true at all, like literally at zero, right? No need to be more extroverted than you feel naturally. No need to show off and develop superpowers, right? Like part of life is getting comfortable with who we are, right? The idea of superpowers is 
I'm somehow lacking because I don't have this thing. But I'm me. That's what I got. So let's say there's a world where you're at zero. Literally none of those things are issues at all. I would say alcohol wouldn't be a problem at all. Now, if we take that to the next level, you asked the question already, so I'll just put it out there. But what value would it provide at all then? And so that's where I think a lot of us end up wrestling really in the end. And I do that myself, right? So alcohol was still a stress reliever for me. Now, mind you, alcohol was not my drug of choice. But uh, it was actually Stanton Peel that helped me with this next part of the conversation. I don't know if you know who he is, but um, mm-hmm. incredibly controversial. I mean, far more controversial than I am and has been around the entire time that I've been alive doing this work. So just kudos to him for being here. But yeah. Stanton and I were having dinner, and I'd mentioned, you know, drinking is not my was not my drug of choice. So it didn't. It still felt like a huge risk because people told me if I drank, I would go back to meth. But drinking was not my main issue. Again, don't get me wrong. There were periods where I drank like a crazy person, but it wasn't my main issue. I, I wasn't afraid of drinking per se. I was just afraid that it would lead to something else. But then it became another cane. Uh, an emotional cane when I was really, really stressed out or when I was socially awkward, I would drink. And what I would tell you, and the reason I drink so much less now is I found other ways to deal with that and in a multitude of channels. So part of that is just the psychological mental work of, oh shit, I don't actually have to be anybody else for anybody. Mm -hmm. That was a huge unraveling for me. Now, I tell people this, take this with a grain of salt. Um, Not everybody in your life is going to like that realization because a lot of people have gotten really used to you acquiescing, um, playing nicely with others and all that. But there might be people you really don't want to play nicely with anymore. And you can just not be in those relationships if it's feasible for you. The level of stress that that might take off of your daily well-being could be immense. The next thing you know, you just don't need to drink as much. Your work. What you described, I can't tell you. Relationships and, and jobs. I've, le- I've talked to so many people who are 15, 20 years into a job they hate, a relationship that hasn't been working, and they're trying to stop drinking. And I go, well, what are we going to do about your job or your fucking marriage? And they're like, well, I don't, nothing. I go, well, you, that's going to fucking suck. <laughs> then now you're, you're not going to have, yeah, have your drink and your job sucks. So... A lot of changes had to happen. I used to work 70-hour weeks, um, hating half the work that I did, definitely not satisfied in the relationship that I was in, the marriage, but also in other relationships in my life, disconnected from a, a real sense of purpose. Like in, in Ignited, you asked this before, Jules, one of the first assessments people take is what I call the Ignited Wheel of Life. It's a, it's a 10-slice overall quality of life assessment. Most people, when they start out out of 100, they score like in the 20s, if they're honest about their life, maybe in the 30s. And I think that's a, a good realistic thing to look at is if you hate every aspect of your life, then I don't wonder why you're drinking. And drinking is not the thing that's the problem is you hate every aspect of your life. We got to go fix that. So now that I'm in this place and if you're in a place where you're comfortable, what is drinking giving me? And that's why my drinking has gone down from I was probably drinking 10 to 12 drinks a week on average to then, you know, 10 and 9 and 8 and 7. And now 
I think most weeks I don't have more than three drinks in a whole week. Maybe even less. Like there might be weeks that I don't drink at all. I don't really track it that much anymore because it's not a alcohol is not a big deal. But I probably have three to four psilocybin journeys a year. Um, I use, and we've talked about this publicly with my wife. Um, we use MDMA a handful of times a year, in terms of mm-hmm. connection and and really. I have a really hard time with empathy and expressing emotions. It was not the world I came from. So I need some help sometimes connecting to what the hell is happening in my, inside my head emotionally. And so I get it from that. And um, with those things in place, there really isn't a big role for drinking for me. It just doesn't. It's not even exciting. So I might go to a restaurant and have a glass of wine because everybody's having it. But honestly, more times than not, I don't finish the glass of wine. Mm, so That's interesting. I think what we have to pay attention to is if we're in the work, if we're doing the work on a regular basis and we're just exploring and we're not afraid of our shadows, we recognize they're just part of us. If you've done 11 ayahuasca ceremonies, it's hard to get, it's hard to be scared of your shadow. Um, <laughs> you've stared it straight in the face a handful of times. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we arm wrestled. Yeah, yeah. So if we're not afraid of our shadow and we're willing to come to every day going, look, and I said it in my story before, I could be totally wrong about everything I think is right right now. My ego is not attached to what I think I know right now. Because I've I've been through this enough times now and been proven completely wrong on enough things that I thought I was completely right on. I will never again um, stake everything I have on a single belief, a single way of looking at the world. I could be wrong about all of this. Um, and I have to show up to every day like that and just keep doing the work, keep talking, keep being open, keep exploring. You know, I had my own therapy session earlier today. I just, that's my job. And as long as I do that, alcohol is no longer the kind of thing I'm relying on, neither is any other drug, to make my life complete. And that's where I think the rubber meets the road is. Mm. I, I don't believe any of these things have the power to make my life better even no you're right yeah it's a really nice viewpoint it is and and it's uh it's wonderful to have a conversation with someone with your story because you have a unique combination you've gone from obviously being a meth addict drug dealer to just nipping off and getting a phd and then becoming Mm. uh an addiction psychologist but but also be, remaining open to to all of these alternative, shall we say, modalities, and I think I, I imagine it can be quite easy for people in the field to to fall straight into the traditional path and you know find themselves working at um, twelve steps uh, rehab clinics, for example. And I'm not or, or medication based stuff. I feel like that's kind of where it falls. You'll get psychiatrists. Yeah. So. I'm not going to say his name, but this was an actual conversation I had with a colleague at UCLA. We were planning to potentially maybe do a project together with, uh, I think this was with Ignited, maybe the rehab I had before, I don't remember, but um, he's a great guy, really, really great guy. But he looked at me and he said, "Um, I don't think I can do this with you because I'll be honest, but everybody thinks you're a little crazy. And (laughs) I was so glad that he was willing to just be that transparent with me 
Yeah. But yeah, nice. it was not an easy road. Martin, I mean, what you know, UCLA is a very science-based school. I mean, one of the top PhD programs in the world in psychology, right? But mm-hmm. CBT is the main foothold in terms of behavioral interventions and all mm-hmm. things that have to do with that. And then medications, genetics, neuroscience, etc. And I studied behavioral neuroscience and statistics. So I was very deeply indoctrinated into the NIDA medical disease model. It wasn't honestly until years and getting exposed to some other mentors that I went, look, biology definitely plays a role in addiction. It's hard to ignore it playing a role. But it's not the whole story. And it's not a fatalistic kind of story. And that took probably four to five years to slowly make that transition. Wowzers. I'd, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on that in a separate conversation just to ensure that I'm avoiding those same traps knowing what I know. But interesting, I, I love your point about, about what we know and about our truth. It's, this is something that the ayahuasca actually taught me, funnily enough, and, and the alternative work that I do over here in Bali. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's the idea um, that everything in the universe is impermanent even knowledge so our truths can change uh, and and not just that we all have different truths that might not necessarily 100% coincide and I wanted to ask you about this anyway but if you think about the what should we call them the camps I think you refer to them as camps the camps in the addiction treatment space and you've 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 a number of camps that have different opinions, right? Somebody saying it's all about biology and neuroscience. Somebody saying it's about trauma. Somebody saying it's uh, it's it's inherited, um, and so on and so forth. I wonder what you think, whether or not um, whether or not there's a universal truth shared by all of those camps. Mm. Is there, is there a point where everybody meets, or does the twain never meet? Um, I tried to make this point in the book and I'm working on the second book so I'm going to try to make this point again because <laughs> it, it's pretty germane to I think the view I think for me the only universal model that works is that all the factors matter but it's the mix within a given individual that is different right so what's I think there's a I've never used this analogy before, so maybe this will work here. We'll test it out. Um, Let's riff there, it. There's that cookbook. Um, is it like salt, fat, heat, something like we're going we're gonna to figure out? Yeah. Salt, yeah. fat, acid, heat, right? Mm-hmm. There's a cookbook called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. The reason the book is named that is every recipe has to contain these elements to make a good dish. If you're missing too much or too little of a given one, the, the dish is incomplete. But they're not saying every recipe has the same amount of salt, fat, acid, and heat, right? Some you heat less, some you heat more. Some you have to nearly burn. Some of them you barely even have to touch heat at all. Um, some of them have almost no salt. Some have, so it's, it's these four factors that you mix in a unique way that create a book full of recipes. I think the same thing is true of addiction. There are people that have 
all the biological cards stacked against them. And there are biological underpinnings. There's habit chains that happen in, in your brain that get reinforced due to repetition and intensity. There are genetic and epigenetic reasons why things happen. Um, there are traumatic biological impact trauma kind of things that can make your body lean towards more risk-taking, less risk-taking. We know this, right? Prefrontal cortical activity gets affected. You make less rational decisions and have a harder time planning. It would be ridiculous to pretend that this doesn't exist. It exists. But it's not fatalistic. It's rare that somebody has so many biological cards stacked against them that positive attributes on the other three areas, as I talk about them, psychology, environment, spirituality, can't help overcome even really, really negative biological underpinnings. So everybody has a mix of risk factors and protective factors as we talk about them in kind of clinical research across these fields. And our game and this is what we try to do at Ignited. We're not doing a, a lot on the biological front right now, but in the end, I do hope to be able to include genetics testing and epigenetics testing and all these other, you know, by the way, nutrition microbiome testing, right? It's not just about your brain. It's also about your gut. There are so many different areas of the biology and it's the marriage of these factors, risk and protective factor across all four of these areas that creates each person's sort of like unique addictive footprint if you want to call it that and that's also our recipe for how to get out of it and it's why there will never be a one-size-fits-all solution for anybody who struggles with addiction because what that presupposes is that everybody struggles with the same thing but they don't they struggle with their own unique mix of things and so the same exact technique that could be really really helpful for person a can actually be damaging for person two and we have to get comfortable with that. The solution is never just going to be simple. There's not going to be a silver bullet. It's not happening. There's not going to be a vaccine against addiction. There's not going to be a single medication everybody can take against it. And by the way, even ayahuasca, uh, I have to say I'm actually ayahuasca naive. I've never, I'm a virgin. I've never done it yet. But um, I've done a lot of psychedelic journeys. Um, ayahuasca is amazing. And I've heard so many incredible stories, but it's not a panacea. It's not going to do the thing that everybody needs it to do. So how do we get comfortable with saying, hey, here's Martin. What would work for Martin? Oh, Jimmy's over there. What would work for Jimmy? Here's Melissa. Here's Jennifer. Right? We start getting comfortable. You're a unique individual. I need to be able to co be comfortable with the fact that your solution will be unique to you in many ways. Mm. That's one of the things I was going to bring up with you is how you really look at everyone as the individual and kind of bring together different tools for each different person depending on what they might need and within that do you think it's important to bring in a lot of alternative healing modalities mm -hmm. into the treatment of addiction i do and unfortunately we're still in the place where there are too many things considered alternative treatments <laughs> right yeah so essentially when anything outside of 12-step or medication and by the way in some fields even medication but anything outside of those two things is technically considered alternative. So we're still in a place where like yoga is considered an alternative treatment for addiction. <laughs> um, that amuses me. Exercise is an alternative treatment, right? Because it's not the standard of care. Standard of care is if you're really advanced, CBT, mindfulness, mm -hmm. um, and there are different manualized ways of doing those, specific medications, and 12-step. 
Smart recovery is slowly getting identified as another kind of peer support idea for um, non-12-step help. But there's not a lot that people consider standard care. So anything else outside of that would be considered therefore alternative. So I do, I love medicine, by the way. um, And I do work with people. I only do it one-on-one or in very small groups right now. Um, Mostly because I've been to jail and I don't want to go back. And, um, you know, you open yourself up to that and all that, something, one thing has to go wrong. And um, it could Mm. could be a pretty deleterious um, impact on all of our lives. So I'm very cautious around that work, but I, I believe there's huge power in medicine. But it's also not a panacea. It's it works really really well for some people and not as well for some others. Sorry, hold on one second. Yeah. Sorry, give me one second. No Hi. worries. Hello. Hello. Who's this then? Um, we can edit this out later, but this is Noah. She's my. I know her. Beautiful little I know girl. I guess she woke up from her nap and is hanging out upstairs. She wants to know more about ayahuasca plant medicine. I'm sure she does. I'm sure she does. Okay, Tali le malaba bri le malaba. Okay. Let's go. Okay. 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 Is it okay if she's on video for a little bit? She can't hear anything. Yeah, we don't. We don't mind as long as you're happy to to have her in the in the podcast. That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. I. Yeah, I should probably elaborate. So as much as I feel as though ayahuasca did the heavy lifting, I um, part of my journey was to remove myself from my environment. So I lived in London for four years and I was uh, cocaine was readily available everywhere. Mm. And it's hilariously, it's part of the process of, of eradicating, er, no, extricating myself from that lifestyle was to go through my phone book and delete all these numbers. And it's, it's that depressing point where you, you have so-and-so Coke, so-and-so Coke, so-and-so mm. Coke, so-and-so Coke in your phone book. You've got all these drug dealers and, and, not, and actually in different cities as well, which was quite interesting. So they were, they were, I always had these contacts for wherever I was in the Western world. So part of my process was to, this is extreme, but it worked. And that was to completely ex- extract myself from the UK and Smart. move to Bali. Yeah, I think so. I think it was very much, um, it, it, it sped up the process. And But I also discovered yoga. I discovered meditation. I discovered sound healing. Mm. Um, I went on silent retreats. Um, so the point is, my experience wasn't ayahuasca just about the ayahuasca but it was about uh, um, adopting and i guess creating my own little program you know what worked for me and, and it was all alternative there you no go. no no um no more traditional therapy no more uh, i never did any i never had to use any medication to to get off um the substances i was i was addicted to yeah but I guess that's the point, isn't it? And it plays to your question, Jules, and that is how, how, do, how do you approach it? So, because obviously um, your wife's a yogi, um, I'm, I'm assuming you guys uh, therefore work with yoga and, and mindfulness meditation in your program. But how do you assess someone and decide, okay, 
feels like we're going to need to do this on the nutrition front, that on the meditation front, that on the yoga front, yada, mm. yada. So I'll just be very frank. It's an ongoing work in progress, if I'm honest. Um, mm -hmm. That is the one place where I think technology is going to give us a really strong advantage. Sorry, I'll repeat that. Or maybe not. <laughs> that is the one place where I think technology is going to end up giving us a really strong advantage, and that is we need data. And if you think about it, in most addiction treatment centers, the data they get on the person who comes in, the quote-unquote identified patient, is incredibly limited. Incredibly mm. limited. They do this biopsychosocial thing or whatever. How long have you been using? Blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But then none of it gets used in any actual way because they can't tailor the treatment to you. So it doesn't matter what you said on a piece of paper. They're going to give you exactly the thing they gave the other person who said a completely different set of things on a piece of paper. That's the wrong way to go about it. The right way to be would be to get the relevant information on the front end. Obviously, the question is what is relevant. Make some decisions on the front end based on that data. So, hey, based on what we see in this assessment or in these assessments, we think this would be the best starting point for you. Then have ways to measure and assess how progress is continuing based on the existing treatment and adjust as needed until you get to whatever the desired end outcome is. But you can tell there's a lot of checking in with progress, which is not at all how we do things right now, right? Right now we measure things very simply. Are you sober? No. Okay, then it's not working. Mm. Are you sober? Yes. Yeah. Okay, then whatever we did works. There's no idea at all about any adjustments, any tailoring. None of that exists right now. And I didn't make this up. This is called adaptive treatment. Research on this has been around for about 15, 16 years. Nobody does it. It's, it's nobody touches it with a 10-foot pole because it's scary it means you have to yeah. do different things with different people and adjust and it's what we're trying to do with ignited so everybody gets assessments on the front end and we have thousands of pieces of content over a thousand over a thousand hours of content and part of what we try to do is match the content you see to your specific set of issues and we're working with a team in penn state actually right now on creating machine learning algorithms they will get even smarter than any ideas that I have. And we'll say when people have these factors based on the assessments we have, they like these types of videos better. They watch these types of videos longer. They rate these videos more favorably or they stay longer or they have better outcomes. So I'm so, I love hearing stories like yours, Martin, because it just reiterates the point, which is if we're comfortable with different people having different recovery experiences mm -hmm. and what we really care about is the end outcome, we care about are they getting better? Then we get to let go of this notion that there's a right treatment, a wrong treatment, a best treatment. And instead we start understanding what's the best treatment for Martin? Yeah, amen. And I think that opens up massive possibilities because there are a lot of approaches that work, guys, a ton. I don't think we need more approaches that work right now. <laughs> We have a bunch of medications. We have a bunch of treatment approaches in, in terms of behavioral interventions. We have, you know, medicines, plant medicines and otherwise. Um, we have yoga. We have exercise, all the different forms of exercise. We have gratitude journaling and, and, med and endless versions of mindfulness and meditation. We have so many tools. It's like, I don't know how to do carpentry, so maybe this example will land. It's like if somebody gave me a um, 500 tool 
like chest, right? With everything, drills, every, all the stuff that you would need to build a house. And I would look at it and I would go, yeah, I don't have exactly what I need to build the house yet though. I just need this one other tool. But in reality, I just don't know how to fucking build houses. So you can give me any <laughs> toolkit you want and I don't know how to do the thing. We have to shift our, we don't need more treatment approaches. We need to figure out how to use what we have to the best of our ability with the people who are presenting. Mm, Aho to that brother. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of goes with everything, everything we're trying to heal from. Everyone needs to be seen as an individual. Yes. Yeah. Even within all realms, the medical realm, whatever the issue is, we just put everyone in the same tick box. Well, you think about you when you sit down with a client and you and you assess them for yoga or for the mentorship that you do. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a one size fits all. No, no. It? And I have, I, you know, I, I learned that very early on in my sort of career just to everyone everyone needs something different and everyone has different they all have different needs they come to you with different reasons mm, yes. and if you've got a set set program it doesn't work because you need the flexibility in there and the but the, therein lies the problem for the likes of uh adi because he wants to heal people right mm. and if you've got 20 addicts on a program and they've all got very different um pathologies um that must be an absolute nightmare for for you to design a course or a retreat or a program that's that, that's going to have the highest optimal success rate for all of those people. First of all, I love challenges, so let's start with that. Secondly, um, I've, I, I seem to have made a career out of banging my head against the wall in one way or another. Um, but I don't think it's as challenging as we think it is, and and I'll explain why. So at Ignited, for instance, we've run about 3,000, 3,500 people through our program. I've never met 90% of them, not once. Like, I've never spoken to them. And that's because 65 to 70% of our users never engage of any, in any of our live support. Not the one-to-many groups, right, live online groups, and not the one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I don't do 90% of anyway, so I probably wouldn't see them there. I lead three or four groups a week. The vast majority of people who've run through the program I've never seen, I've never met. The question that I keep asking myself is what additional resources do I need to offer so that no matter who the person coming in, there's something for them? And then the next piece is how do I get smart enough? And I don't actually mean me, I mean our, our online platform. How do I make that thing smart enough so that the first few things they get are so tailored to them that they get that we get them. And that's the question. That's the game I'm playing right now. Is So I'll give you an example. Um, we're having really amazing conversations in correction settings, jails, prisons, parole, probation. I thought this was the last place I would ever be able to talk to anybody, but we're having incredible conversations. But I had this realization um, just a few days ago. Yeah, I went to jail. Yes, I was a drug dealer, but that was 22 years ago. And also, I don't know if you guys noticed, I'm a white guy. Um, and I'm foreign, right? I'm from Israel originally, so I am a first-generation um, immigrant to the States, but nobody knows that. Nobody would be able to see that and talking to me because I look like every other white American guy. My English is good enough now. You know, it's, I, I, I've assimilated fully. This might not be surprising, but I'm not exactly the demographic that is 80% of which are spending time in jails and prisons. So I'm not an idiot. 
I'm not the best guy to deliver the message to some of those people. Some will listen mm-hmm. and will be able to still fully absorb what I have to say and connect to me somehow. But many of them will look at me and go, who the hell is this douchebag? He's not going to teach me anything. My job is not to care about that. I, I don't need to be liked. I don't need to be lauded. I don't need anybody to even know who the hell I am on our platform. My job is to go look for the voices that those people would connect to. And then make the platform smart enough to go, that one, that person would prefer a, you know, a set of content delivered by these types of people in this sort of way. And if we can do that, it is utilizing the power of technology to give people what they need instead of what I think they should have. Mm. I think we can do it. I don't think it's that big a deal. Oh, it's fascinating. I, I, I have to say this is the first time I've ever had a conversation about addiction treatment that, that opens up or, or examines the possibilities that uh, the AI machine learning and facial recognition, for example, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, um, offer. I don't know about you. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I was thinking it might be going a little bit off topic, but um, the, the future of ed tech <clears throat> excuse me, is asking these questions. And I know there are a couple of uh, um, firms out there now looking into exactly what you've identified, and that is actually how we how we personalize this and, and we do it on mass and on scale, because that's the issue, right? Exactly. Is to Is to create a huge library of content and then allow the AI, through facial recognition, in fact, to serve up specific content uh, I, 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 I'm a writer mm. uh, and uh, find myself writing all sorts of things for all sorts of people and um, so I, I happen to know a bit about this because I've worked in the ed tech space not too long ago and there is already the technology out there to um, register the, the interest on the face of the learner and ascertain how engaged they actually are on a scale yeah. and Quite clearly, if they're if they're less engaged than they should be, then the there's there's also the technology for for AI to then switch out the content. So to constantly be de- yes. delivering content that's that's uber relevant to that human um, on a scale that you know you and I well obviously you less so, but I would absolutely have no clue about in terms of. Um, how is this engaging? Because as much as I can register micro expressions the same as any other human, this technology allows uh, a whole other opportunity to say, actually, this isn't working for him or her. Switch it out. Let's hit exactly. him with this content. Yeah. So I don't think we're that far. It's just that, you know, addiction is like the redheaded stepchild of, of the health industry. Um <laughs> And I'll just clarify what I mean by that. I, I, sorry, I, <laughs> I did not mean to offend anybody with red hair. I, I have to remember constantly the environment. Or any stepchildren. Or any stepchildren. <laughs> no stepchildren were harmed in the processing of this data. Um, <laughs> the advances are so late coming into addiction for two main reasons. First of all, I hate this term, but I'll use it to make the point addicts are seen as bad people so for the same reason that you're not running out there to help a bunch of criminals which is also idiotic but for the same reason people aren't running out there to help a bunch of people committed crimes because the idea in our society they committed crimes because they are bad people 
people aren't lining up to help quote-unquote addicts. The one difference being pharmaceutical companies because they feel like they can make enough money long-term chronically. So all we get is a bunch of medications if they can be uh, prescribed long-term chronically for the rest of these people's lives at a high enough cost. So high-level technological advances, they're not coming to addiction. And that's part of the reason why I'm sort of trying to lead the charge in this way is the tools are there. Like I said, we don't need any more tools. We've got all the tools we need. I just have no money, right? Like if I had $150 million in the bank account, I could hire the developers. We could get this done by next year. It's taken me four and a half years to create over a thousand hours. It's probably more than that at this point of content because you have to have a huge content library. We had to start from nothing, create videos, record the videos. And now we literally have an editor going and editing the videos and tagging them, etc. But we are a tiny outfit. It's me and my daughter. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be fun? It's like me and my three-year-old are running this company. Um <laughs> We have a team of two full-time employees. People sometimes think that Ignite is, it's like we have a bunch of coaches, we have other people, but two full-time people do this. So we don't have the bandwidth to run it as fast as it needs to, but the tools are here right now. Um, somebody just needs to care enough about this to put the money behind it. And yes, they need the area expertise. They need to be able to create the content. All those other things are there, but we're not trying to create I should be careful what I say because technology changes so fast. Like a decade ago, I would say something like, you know, we're not trying to create a hovercraft, but there's probably a goddamn hovercraft already that works now. So maybe we are trying to create yep. a hovercraft. Like the technology is there. We know how to do the thing. We just need to care enough about it and put the resources into it and we'll be good. That's a really exciting prospect. We should have a conversation about that off, off, um, yeah. off air because I'm, might be able to put you in touch with some people in that in that regard but uh it, it's certainly a, a whole other territory and space that i hadn't really considered and it moves into it's, it's into the edgy it's into the online education space isn't it and what i love about it <clears throat> excuse me is that it's empowering uh, this and, and i i think so so few people this comes back to your point about labeling and stigmatization of, uh, of uh, addicts and people with mental illness. Actually, a lot of us are doing the work. A lot of us are, 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 are crawl, maybe crawling through it, through the, yeah. the turgid mess uh, to do it. But a lot of us are doing it um, from a self-empowered perspective, more mm. so than I think many people realize. And actually, to to have a, an opportunity for for people who are doing that work on their own, in their own at their own pace, and their own, and getting better, right? Just not getting as much better as everybody would like for them to get. Totally. I have a client, client, a user on the United platform, who cut her drinking down at her peak. She's gone up a little bit since this, but still, drinking less than 25%, I think, of what she was drinking when she came to us. But she cut her drinking down by 97, 98% at some point from 15 mm. bottles a week to three to six drinks a week of wine. Yeah. Um, Without physical intervention. With no, I mean, just, just an online therapy group and, and online groups. When she told her therapist about it, his response was, you shouldn't be drinking at all. Like he couldn't even celebrate a 97, 98% reduction in drinking because he's so brainwashed that, well, but you need to go to zero. 
And we know relapse rates are ridiculous. People try to go to zero all the time. And by the way, again, zero is great, but people go to zero and then drink and then they'll go to zero and then drink. This happens all the time. Like we need to get mm. ourselves out of this ridiculous mindset. And I think education is a really good platform to start thinking from because you can't do that in education. Imagine an education if the only acceptable score was 100. Everybody would fail. It would never work. The whole system yeah. would crumble. You, they couldn't. Well, you, you wouldn't start. About, nobody would start. Exactly. Like, which is if why. If it's too unachievable, you're not going to do it. Which like. is why nobody starts an addiction because, mm. oh, crap, I can't hit that. And if I can't hit that, I might as well do nothing. Right? Because yeah. it's easier to stay doing, doing exactly mm. the same thing. As I noticed uh, the shocking stat that you've, you mentioned in your book and, and in your talks that um, 85% of, of addicts never actually seek help yeah not never seek and, I, and by the way i have to qualify that because the number has gotten worse in my head so when i was doing that there was a uh, drug dependence right people who meet criteria for dependence essentially which is now the severe part of substance use disorder so when you qualify that there are about 24 and a half 25 million people with an, a severe substance use disorder in the u.s two and a half million people enter help every year there's another, you know, 1 million or so that say they sought help but didn't get it. So that's where the number comes from. 25, two and a half get, so 10% get help. About 15% say they sought help. Mm. But there aren't 25 million people who struggle with drugs and alcohol in the States. There are 70 to 75 million people who struggle with alcohol and drugs in the States. None of those, none of those other 50 million even consider getting help because the help is so insane <laughs> that they would never... You know, like if you're a housewife that's drinking a bottle a night, that's five drinks. It's definitely too much for most people, right? Health-wise even and many other ways. But you're never going to think to yourself, I'm going to go to rehab. It's going <laughs> to sound insane to you. It does so not the, compute. It literally does not compute. So the, the number has actually gone up to me to almost 90, 95% of people never even try to get help because the help has been so... Um, siloed that the vast majority of people who need help not who are severe but who need help don't even consider the current help as an option for them that plays to uh, something you were saying last night about your feelings of the normalization of addiction mm. yeah and well I was saying how it's almost like we it comes into like a learnt behavior we learn with alcohol anyway to drink throughout life for all different occasions. And then for some of us, it spirals into just drinking more and more and more. Mm. Um, but in many, in, in many societies, let's use alcohol as an example, it's, it's normal. It's normalized, it's okay. It's, in the UK. It's an accepted, an accepted way to finish your day or to deal with your stress or to deal with sure. yeah, you're either or... you're either celebrating commiserating or taking <laughs> the edge off yeah and uh and and uh, yeah i mean i, I i'm and it's we... normal at the weekend to drink a good few bottles of wine it is and have a little bit of a hangover on a monday you're you're the abnormal one you know you're the abnormal one if you go to a party you're like yeah i don't i'm not drinking Oh yeah, yeah, you know. Totally. Yeah, like I stopped drinking maybe two and a half years ago now, and I went home for Christmas, and it was very bizarre for everyone that I wasn't drinking, and it, I was very, and it was very much, oh no, well what can you drink? 
what are we gonna and it was like i became a bit of an issue because like are we gonna invite jules or not you know she's the one that doesn't drink i don't know we don't have any we don't have any water or soda so we might as well just not invite yeah. her at all that's funny no first of all she gave up me and now she doesn't you, drink actually, but you were lucky to to be in a supportive family environment there who have already supported your vegetarianism and veganism but i've been in situations prior to leaving England where I was mocked and vilified. Yeah, you weren't very supported when you no. chose to give up alcohol no, and drugs. No, and, and I, I lost, it's funny how you lose a great number of your so-called friends, I, I call them disco friends now, um, people who suddenly aren't associating with you in the same way because you, you had that connection. And actually, it turns out we were all propping one another up. We were propping one another's addiction up. That's what I meant when I was saying before. And you talked about environment. And I wrote in the book, and it'll be in my next book as well. Environmental influence is one of the least understood um, factors having to do with addiction. And mm. the evidence for that is ridiculous. So we don't need to go through all of it. But you gave one example, right? Oh, look, if I move away from where I do all this stuff and I there in the next place set up a completely different way of life, both of those are necessary, right? Um, mm. All of a sudden, a lot of the triggers, a lot of the cues, a lot of the things that made me think about using, remind me I wanted to use, and by the way, stressed me out to the point where I needed to drink or use in order to feel okay. When With those being gone, you don't have as much of a problem. And I think I said this before, but you just gave that example, so I'll just reiterate. If there are people in your life you need to drink around in order to hang out with them, stop hanging out with them. Mm. Pretty simple, right? I'm not saying don't ever drink with other people if you consume alcohol. But if you can't be with those people sober because you can't stand them enough to hang out with them, the solution is not <laughs> to drink. The solution is to eliminate those people from your life. Very simply, amen. Man. Yeah, you know. So, and 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 the same applies to many other things, right? If your job makes you want to drink, I'm not saying you can quit today. You got to pay rent. Nobody listen to this and go quit and go homeless on me and then go, hey, but you know, Doctor D on this podcast told me that I should. That's not what I'm saying. But if you hate your job so much that at the end of the workday, and I was in that place many times in my life, you have to go home and drink. Either change the job, change the way you feel about your job, or you know, get the fuck out of Dodge and go move somewhere else where you don't need to ha have that position. Like, and I, it doesn't matter how much money you make, by the way. I've worked with people who are billionaires with a B, right? Multiple jets, multiple continents, hate their day-to-day -day life. And my question to them always is, when are we going to change what you do every day? I mm. can't. Well, you know, all these people count me from, okay, cool. Then you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. Like... <laughs> You know, um, I'm so I glad you've I'm, I'm glad you cracked this this topic open because it's I find myself saying speaking in the same matter of fact way. <clears throat> Excuse me, and and uh, sometimes people criticise that. Well, it's not that easy. Well, I'm not saying it is easy. Yeah, you know, I'm, no I, obviously I'm I'm, si I'm 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 sitting in a different seat than I was three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago. Um, but it is the big but, and I think this this um, cracks the nut for a lot of people if you're not willing to embrace the concept of change as a universal fact mm. by the way, um, then you are you are you are in your own way uh, i can't remember the expression what you're not changing you are choosing right? mm. 
and and it's it's something I find myself saying a lot in in different ways, shapes, and forms. People said to me, "How did you?" Because I closed my business down in in London. This was <laughs> back to the ayahuasca story briefly. They say you're not supposed to make any major life changing <laughs> decisions for at, for at least three months after an ayahuasca journey. How, how long did my you last? Ayahuasca, it's three days. I was, I was in. Uh, but one day I was in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco having, you know, this spiritual rebirth. And, um, and three days later, I'm in, in the boardroom in my creative agency in Borough saying, guys, I'm, I'm really sorry. I've decided to just close it all down. What? It's, it's a successful business. Yada, yada. Well, yeah, yeah, it's successful, but it isn't. And it, actually, it's making me really miserable. And we're all part of the problem. So, yeah, I'm just going to close it all down and, and I'm, and I'm going to go and live in Bali. Uh, and that 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 literally blew people's minds. Yeah. The, the idea that I could close down my business, my legacy, and, and I'm doing um, air quotes for those just listening to this podcast. Um, they were really good air quotes, by the way. Thanks. For Great that. I, I've been working on it. Um, to sell and give everything I owned away and literally took a couple of bags and a beagle mm. to Bali. Um, I think that's the name it of it. Was, do you have a book yet? Because if not, a couple of bags and a beagle is the name of the book. <laughs> he does tend to speak in uh, book titles. I've noticed recently. <laughs> Man, great. that was a. I, a, a I mean, if you're not using it, I'm stealing it for something. <laughs> you, perhaps I'll reach. I'll. Uh, well, actually, there's a. There's a. I do have a book. I'm writing a book called How to Die Happy. No surprise there. Yeah. And uh, one of the chapters is um, about the beagle. But I will just tweak that. Yeah. Thanks Oof, for that. Good. I mean, that that'd be the chapter name. A couple of bags a and a beagle. One. Man, that's a two bags and a beagle. <laughs> but it. You know, back to your point, it's, um, I think we underestimate humanity's intransigence, uh, which is directed by many things, primarily by fear, I think. The idea of making wholesale changes to one's life is an absolute impossibility to so, so many people. And, and, I, and I think there's something in that. And I think there's something in, in how that conversation is had in this space. Because it doesn't require a medication. It doesn't require, I guess it requires mindfulness skills, perhaps. Mm. Um, awareness, observation, self-awareness. Mm. I don't know. I'm rambling. What do you think? Well, self-awareness is really difficult. I don't know if it is for you or not. It's really, really difficult. Um, we have a very limited understanding of who we are, what we're doing, let alone why we're doing it. And I'm, I'm a big supporter. And this is why I love these kinds of conversations is I always learn. It's why I love leading groups. I always learn. I learn from seeing things in myself, in other people. And then I go, oh, I'm telling you, you got to work on that. But I think I, once we're done with this group, I got to go work on it myself. And I love that. <laughs> you know, we see ourselves reflected in other people. And I think that's an important piece of the, the human puzzle. This might be a cliche, but like when it when it comes down to it, if I'm alone in a room isolated by myself, then who am I? What's my personality? Like what what is how do I behave? It's not that clear. Right? It's it's in my relationship with others that I reflect who I am. And so it seems pretty obvious, therefore, that if you change that environment that you are in, if you are willing, comfortable enough to experiment, like what if you just don't even 
don't even do it as a point of fact, but just say, let me run an experiment. If I don't like these things in my life, or I think they're causing me stress, what would it be like if I take myself out of this place? Do I feel differently? Do I want to drink as much? Uh, am I as frustrated at the end of the day? Do I want to yell at my spouse or kick the dog or scream at my children? Or is it that in these other settings, I don't feel that to the same extent? Because if that ends up being true for anybody listening right now, pay attention to the message. It's not built into you because if it was built into you, you would carry all of it with you. If something changes and run little experiments in your life, this is a really, really important thing. Push your own boundaries a little bit. Do things that are a little uncomfortable and do them not because they necessarily are the right things for you, but do them because you don't know if they're the right things for you and you won't know them until you experience them. And so, you know, like mindfulness is one of those things, right? Huge evidence base for meditation, huge. Mm. I, I don't know how many books, how many articles, how many brain imaging studies we need to do. Meditation is good for people. Some people hate meditation. They despise it. They feel like crap when they do it. Well, guess what? Slow down. You don't need to meditate right now. <laughs> if it's harming you, slow But But if you don't try it, you won't know what the impact will be. And so, I mean, I in a way, it's funny because I applaud the, um, the single-mindedness that you had coming out of this journey and the commitment you had to creating change. And part of the reason people tell us not to make in any situation, um, sort of very quick decisions is, you know, things settle. And especially psychoactive states, especially psychedelic states, have a, have a much longer process, length of process than most of us realize. Right. It's like you've done silent retreats. The same thing happens if you talk about anybody who's done a silent retreat. It's like day one is not like day two and that's not like day three and not like day four, not like day five. Um, I just led a silent retreat here locally and somebody at the end told a story that I loved. They said before they did it, everybody who's listening right now and thinks we're crazy for even talking about silent retreats. I totally get it. <laughs> Scared the shit out of me the first time I did one. I was freaked out. But this guy was sharing a story that he heard about a woman who went into a um, Buddhist monastery for 18 years. And when she came out, they asked her, what was it like? And she said, it wasn't boring. <laughs> and and the, the point that she's making is there's enough happening upstairs with very simple life to create an entire journey. It is a lie perpetuated by marketing and sales and you know, this is probably why it was so bothersome to you to go back to a sales and advertising position. The lie that you need something to make your life good is a lie that is per uh, perpetuated by commerce because you got to get the other car and the jackets and the socks and the tie and the sunglasses and, you know, because if you don't get it, then people don't have jobs. So there's, there's a role for it, right? But you can be and oftentimes are actually much happier without all those things than you are with them so for sure run experiments run every kind of experiment you can in your life and then which is what you did and i will promise you you will start honing in on the pieces that feel good to you 
And then if anybody's listening right now and the thing that feels good to you is crypto trading, you know, crypto day trading and sitting on a laptop and watching, um, you know, financial meters move up and down and that makes it for you, that does it for you, you love it, go all in, enjoy yourself. But don't run yourself through the programming other people told you will make you happy. Live a miserable life and then try to blame yourself for not being able to find that happiness. Get out there, create the experiences, and your intuitive sense will tell you, you know, you're making the right choice or the wrong choice. And then just, you know, the commitment part, which you obviously had, is the difficult part of the whole equation. That's good advice. I love the idea that we all continue this journey of self-empowerment and, and run your own experiments. It's, it's, it's absolutely spot on. It plays back to the conversation we're having, doesn't it? You can't say that one size fits all. You have to remember that we are powerful. We've given, we give a lot of our power away, but a lot of our power is taken away. Yeah. And I think once we start to re-empower ourselves, yeah, I mean that. Well, that plays. I suppose that plays into the spiritual aspect of this of mm. of, of, he, of self healing, doesn't it? Mm. We are creator beings, and you're quite right. Society and the system. I'm going to say the matrix uh, sure. have played a played a huge part in removing our sovereignty. And we have the power to heal ourselves. Mm-hmm. But often we just we, watched. We, we, at the point, we need a little guidance and a little, you know, mm. yeah, define that. Totally. Um, you put it out there, so it's not my fault that we're going here. But um, we just watched The Matrix again with my kids. And um, I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And, you know, I'm old. I'm 46 years old. You're, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've crossed over into some other threshold I never thought I would necessarily make it to. But <laughs> I remember when that movie came out, and it was life-changing. And not life-changing and cinema-changing and all these other things, right? It it created a huge um, ripple effect, if you will. And and I think the reason was it gave us language for a thing we already knew we were talking about, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, all these things have to do with your beliefs and how you see the world. The language was there, but it was it was complex and it didn't it wasn't intuitive. It didn't feel like something you could sink your teeth into. Well, you know, my underlying belief structure is that just it felt academic and weird. And now you can just say, well, you know, we're all part of the matrix and everybody understands what you mean. And of course, I think I hope this is obvious. We're actually all living in different matrices, right? Because your matrix and my matrix are different. They were dictated by the programming, the people you were raised around, the culture, the expectations. I hope. And obviously, if people are listening to your podcast, that they're open to this at least. But I hope people take it to heart. Guys, there are almost no rules. There are almost no rules other than the rules that you have been told are placed upon you. And that is true in relationships, like marriages, romantic relationships. That is true in friendships. That is true in what you decide to do for work. That is just obviously, as, as you just gave us an example, it's true in terms of where you live, what books you read, what TV shows you watch, or whether you ever watch TV, um, substances you ingest or don't, like the, across the gamut, like any area of life, there is no right way to live. doesn't exist. Okay, what do we do with that? Well, 
it's now up to all of us. We all have to make the choices and find the people and, and connect to those that fulfill what it will take to make us live a life full of joy, of excitement, of contentment. You talk about spirituality, having a sense of purpose and contributing to the environment you live in is one of the things that has given me the most spiritual, the biggest spiritual awakening. Um, so we all find our mix. But that was the most freeing realization for me was when I was able to take, and again, I know it's cliched, but when I was able to take the kind of lessons the matrix was positing, and for anybody who doesn't know that, by the way, the uh, the people the people who directed and wrote the book meant it as a as a commentary on at least the sexual gender roles in society and how you can get trapped in this world of who you're supposed to be. Being able to live that way is an incredibly freeing experience, and if you've never experimented with it, I highly recommend it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I I often say the Matrix was a documentary. <laughs> Let me die in peace in peaceful fields full of weeds and a breeze that's sweet. Some place where we all grew our own food in community with friends and family that love the sea and they love to see when I'm doing really good. Uh, where were we? Uh, we were on the Matrix, Matrix. documentary. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I always say the Matrix is a documentary, and I'm and I'm a big fan of of red pilling anyone who will listen. It's a, it's a funny, it's a funny thing, to to do this work, and I think, certainly personally speaking, doing this work is a long process, and it involves many things. It involves, can involve, as we've discussed, uh, a changing environment, which then inspires the opportunity to do the shadow work to really sit with yourself in the searing pain of the things that you've done thought hmm. said i love the way you just said that <laughs> in the searing pain yeah well i did that I, I remember doing it i remember specifically sitting for days and weeks just actually sitting with it in it, not trying to avoid it, like I'd done all of my whole life, you know, it's actually just to sit in that and to, but to observe it for what it is. And then to suddenly feel that shift where judgment, self-judgment changed. And then actually forgiveness came into play. And then self-love became this incredible epiphany for me, um, heart opening epiphany. But then moving into these these additional spaces of okay well hang on a minute you know how how, did, how is society structured to support me and I, you know what the answer was well it kind of isn't actually mm -hmm. from a personal perspective so so this for me it was this slow unplugging and obviously we're still talking about the matrix but they have all of these cables in them don't they in this movie they're you know they're kind of jacked in in several sure. different ways all the way up the spine into this into the whole system and and actually for me it was this wonderful systematic process of unplugging myself until eventually da da shit i'm bald i've got no eyebrows i'm covered in goo <laughs> <laughs> um now i'm almost I'm imagining i'm almost imagining martin like 
closing the agency down, shaving his head, covering himself in goo, all of it together. <laughs> that's it. That's a part, part of the process. I'm, I'm a very literal person, Eddie. That's funny. Um, but it, um, it, I mean, we've gone way off piece, but that's... that's I mean, not really, though. I mean, if, I mean, look, we started an addiction, right? Addiction has been operating under the rubric of the medical slash spiritual disease model, right? The AA model, the 12-step model that came out of very religious underpinnings. And people can say it's not a religious program, but I call bullshit. It came out of Christian programs in the mid-1930s, right around the time the prohibition ended in the U.S. It was seeded by people from those groups. It's a Christian program. It says the word God and every prayer is a Christian prayer. Like, I don't know how you can pretend it's not a Christian program. Um, and what is religion? And by that, I mean organized religion, but a method of indoctrination into a system, a belief, of, a way of seeing the world. So I don't think we're off topic at all. It's just that we've broadened the understanding to we were sold a bill of goods and the bill of goods was hey we figured out what addiction is these people figured it out they were handed down a book it was divinely um ordained that this is the way addiction should be helped and psychiatrists didn't know what to do with addiction partially because nothing was understood about the brain or addiction or anything like that in the 20s so they handed it off to these people and they have failed us miserably as a system i want to be clear i want to say this 12-step programs have helped millions of people, right? It's not that they don't work for anybody, but they are far from a silver bullet and they don't work for most people who try them. So I'm not putting down 12-step programs, but let's call them what they are. They are religiously oriented support networks and that's it. And we've developed an entire field of in, an industry of addiction help based on these things. In, a, in many addiction treatment centers, definitely 15, 20 years ago, what you got, and I'm putting that in big air quotes, was early wake up with a breakfast, AA meeting in the morning, maybe a process group in your rehab in the middle of the day. If you had a lot of money, you got like a pool and a chef. Um, and if you didn't <laughs> have as much money, you got you know whatever government-sponsored food was given in the place. Then you went to an evening meeting and you went to bed. That was it. That was what you got. That was what we consider treatment. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But we were sold it as reality. So we can talk about matrix as an overarching uh, analogy and metaphor to life in general. Or we can focus on any specific area that has been, I don't think this is a verb, but has been dogmaed to death. Right? This is the right way. This is the only way. The only way you do this. If, if, if somebody says that to you, be careful. If somebody's standing there telling you my way is the only way, do not touch the Kool-Aid, step slowly outside of the room, and try to make it home safely. That has never worked out <laughs> well in society. you know. And so why, why do people vilify us who, who try to talk about things differently? Because we work against the fabric of how they see reality. It is like the Matrix. They look at us like, no, no, you're insane alcoholics need this kind of help my book says it you're not giving that kind of help therefore you're going to hurt people and they nothing else really computes and for me because i've picked this sliver for now of society that i'm trying to help i will keep 
just picking at that version of the matrix because yes it's an overarching metaphor that works for every element of our lives from how we parent to what we think food is to everything just and everything applies right that's too much for me to take on elon musk might want to take that on uh, later in life when he's done saving the planet and getting us to mars but um but i'm sort of done I have like one little sliver of the world I'm trying to make better. And um, I love the analogy because it works. It works in so many levels and it also works in this level. Mm. Thank you, brother. Yeah, okay. What, um, what do you think we could do as a global community to really start supporting addicts and to deal with the dehumanization that's sort of been taking place of addicts? How do we mm. flip that back around? It's a good question. I mean, you know, Martin, you probably, to be honest, you probably know more about the machinations of commerce than I do. I've never held a corporate job in my life. Um, I was an academic. Well, let's see, jobs. I bagged groceries. I played music. I uh, sold drugs. I became a professor, and now I do this. So I've never really been part of any plugged in corporate structure in my life other than kind of the education system right which is another one of those versions it also works on that level um but i think the thing the way i see it is this is a grassroots a ground up sort of process and it is red pilling everybody in a way right it is giving people permission to seek answers other than the ones they were initially provided. The way I talk about it in the Ignited program, anybody who's been with us, is I say, look, when you uh, when you were born, somebody gave you a book and they said, anytime you got a problem, just look up in the book and they'll tell you what to do. Obviously not explicitly, but you got a manual from the people around you, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your neighbors, your friends, whoever, your teachers. And we look at this book and we follow it and we go, oh, when a girl looks like she likes you, you do this. And we do it. And if it works, we give credit to the book. If it doesn't, we go, what the fuck is wrong with me? I did the thing in the book and I didn't get the result I wanted. What's wrong with me? But we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the recipe in the book is not the right recipe for us. Maybe we need to find another recipe. And we need to edit the manuscript. And so I want to give everybody a freedom to just go, well, do you guys like, do you follow Bruce Lipton at all? Yeah. Um, Bruce Lipton said guy. this to me once when we were, when we were talking, love that guy. Um, and he said, look, look at the printout of your life. Write out what happens in your life. Write out the pieces that aren't working the way you want them. And recognize that the reason those things are not working right is because the programming you've come into this world with, the programming you've been handed down, is creating a reality for you that you are repeating over and over and over that is um, objectionable. And you can live with it or you can change it. But changing your underlying beliefs is a process. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's going to cause all these pain points, the misery that you had referred to earlier. And the misery is like the heat, right? Like, what is it? Irons forge and fire, right? You're going to have to go through mm. the pain to get the end result because you've grown comfortable in the pain. And you're going to try to extricate yourself, as you pointed out earlier. So... I don't know that there's a systematic way to do this. And the reason is any system by definition is going to need its own rules. 
right? So no matter what the next system is that we create, it's going to have to have its own hierarchy, its own rules, its own ways of being. The only other version that I know of is essentially anarchy. And that also has its own rules, right? Anarchy has its own rules. So um, I envision a life, and I'd say this to our people at Ignited all the time. If we had been having this conversation 100 years ago, I don't think I could do what I do. Because you really didn't have that many options. If you didn't fit into your close circle, you're you were at risk of not surviving. A real risk of not surviving. Go farther than 100 years ago, that's certainly true. Right? But your family, your close neighbors, the people you knew well, that was your lifeline. That was your safety net. You can't rock that boat too much. Because who else is going to hold you? Can, you didn't have the ability to just go travel the world and find your next group of people, right? What you did, Martin, was not really possible 200 years ago. Hey, guys, mm. going to get up. I don't need this money anymore. I'm going to go move to Bali. Um, you couldn't have done any of that. So that I think there's a privilege in what we get to do right now. But let's take advantage of that privilege. So I, th- I think the way we do it is what will end up happening. And I think technology, again, is, is helping facilitate this and we'll do that more. We'll create smaller pockets where people are more cohesive and more in agreement in terms of those values and those rules that they want to follow that give them joy and completion and, and make them content in life. And just because that pocket is um, unlike mine, Right? Just because that tribe, that group of people doesn't behave like I do, doesn't hold values, won't actually interfere with their ability to survive or my ability to survive. And so we'll be fine. They'll get to live in their version. We, and I, I think it'll be, a, that's where I see things going versus what like the great American experiment was, right? Which is, in a, in a way, can we create this world that runs on the same rules for everybody? Right, and I would argue probably all mm. empires try to do that. Capitalism everywhere, individual freedom above all, blah blah, like all that stuff. There was a time. I hope most Americans don't believe this anymore. But there was a time where Americans like, oh, this is the best way to live, and everybody should do this all over the world. And this is the only way to live. I think I think it's proving itself to not be exactly correct. It is well, and it's, and I, I suppose the the proof is in the evolution of decentralization isn't it and i think um you make you make a one a a, a number of wonderful points there i i think one of the wonderful opportunities that technology is bringing is is for people like us in bali to have a conversation with people like you in california and make that conversation available to anyone with an internet connection and and have these difficult conversations how insane i mean just think about what you just said like that's insane it's it's fucking nuts (laughs) i mean 20 years ago this was impossible yeah totally i would imagine five years ago it was impossible in bali because of the internet connection so i you know now we have this incredible incredible opportunities as uh, a as a species to tap into all of this knowledge like so fast and all we all we actually need is the the desire to help ourselves. Sorry, I just want I just want I just want to say this because I can tell what's happening about me right now. I probably have like ten to fifteen minutes left before this house becomes a mess. 
So don't worry, we're we're going to wrap up in five anyway because okay. we we are conscious we've over, we've overrun. Um, and they're fogging. Yeah, and they've started to fog for mosquitoes down the street, <laughs> so we'll start to in, inhale carcinogenic <laughs> gas in a minute, oh, which no. is always a nice thing about living in Bali. I've um, still never been. I got to go. Oh yeah, well yeah, hey, listen, come, come and see visit. us. Come and see us. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Frogs. <laughs> lots of frogs. So um, we just want to know what's next for you. What's uh, what's in the plans? Hmm. I'm working on another book, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's been four or five years since the last one. And then I think I mentioned this before, but we are having really some of the most exciting conversations in the corrections space, which given what we just talked about, in my history, I didn't think I would ever touch with a 10-foot pole, if I'm honest. Uh, I thought my history precluded me from being able to do much good there. And I thought the correction space wasn't ready for this kind of conversation. Um, but there's been a huge shift in at least certain pockets in the corrections world. And I don't know if people know this, but 85 to 90% of people incarcerated in the United States either have an active drug problem or in jail or prison for a drug-related offense. 85 to 90%. So Wises. I feel like I'm, I'm getting this opportunity. We're talking in Wisconsin. We're talking in Colorado. We're talking in Illinois. We're talking in North Carolina. We're talking uh, in Washington State and Seattle. And um, having amazing conversations that could impact hundreds of thousands of lives of the most disenfranchised, right? The people who are, I hate saying it, but they're not even plugged into the fun part of the matrix. Like at least our part of the matrix mm. is... Um, like full of you know toys and candy and all this other bullshit but um, still does the same thing to us still causes stress and misery etc cetera, etc cetera. but like there are people that don't even have the ability to play with the toys and use the candy right their program has been so limited and the idea that I get to help in that space is so exciting for me because when I started Ignited, I had a singular goal, and the goal was to help millions of people. That was kind of what I said. Um, we've helped thousands. We're getting close to tens of thousands, but you know, we're nowhere near millions. And that's that's where I I want to go. I mean, the only way that I know that we reach anywhere near my goal for the work we're doing right now is when we see that little addiction overdose curve that everybody keeps showing every year actually bend down. And when we flip that equation, so instead of 97% of people not getting help, it's like 5, 10, 20% of people not getting help and everybody else has something to plug into. Um, so that's on the professional side, that's where I want to go. And, you know, on the personal side, because I'm also battling the exact same matrix as everybody else that I help is, right? And, yeah. and what I've learned, and I'm really grateful for learning this, but I've had the privilege of literally working with some of the most incredible humans on the face of the planet. Some of them creative geniuses, some of them financial geniuses, you know, the jets, all this stuff. And what it taught me more than anything is that those accoutrements, if you will, um, create absolutely no more joy than driving in a Toyota Camry or a RAV4 or, you know, being on a bicycle. Um, and it gave me massive freedom to disconnect and not have money as a goal. 
But, and I just want to say this, there's a way I want to live my life with my family. There's a manner in which I want the day-to-day behavior to happen. And that's something I am working on on a constant basis to refine what I learned was parenting into what I want my parenting to look like, you know, what work is like and what my relationship with my wife is like. So that's a game we're playing forever and I don't think it's going to end. So that's the personal side of my life is always refining what my version of uh, the program looks like. That's beautiful and 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 plays to the whole conversation, doesn't it? They, so So few of us, for whatever reason, through societal programming, through the trauma, through the... Just the necessity of, of living everyday life. We don't get to spend enough time thinking about this stuff. You know, mm. having this level of self awareness, observing our, our mental health, our behaviour, our interactions, um, mm. and, and and with betterment in mind. You know, I, and I I am I for one am immensely grateful for whatever reason that. I managed to make that switch and to become self-aware and to then decide, okay, yeah, like I could spend the rest of my life learning about life. Yes. And isn't it so much fun when you realize that we can create whatever we want and we can make those decisions that this is the way I want my relationship to be or my family yeah. life. It's or beyond my... exciting. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's and exploring. we can change it, right? Like we can make one set of decisions, learn something new and shift I, I think it's yeah. it's some of the most fun I've ever had in my life, and um, and I know it's just going to keep getting better. So it's really exciting. A ho to that! Well, this has been uh, a really great conversation, uh, Adi. I've, I, I've I, obviously for for various reasons, as, as you've probably gathered, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. And um, as is always the way, there's no way we can unpack all of this in in a, in a podcast. So of course, perhaps we could talk to you again at some point in the future because uh, you've been um, you've been a delightful guest to speak to. And thank uh, you, man. This would be this was a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Do you want to uh, drop your social handles and your web address and all of that sort of stuff for, for people who are listening who want to find out more sure. about you and Ignited? I try to keep it consistent, so it's pretty much at Doctor D Jaffe everywhere. So that's um, Dr. Doctor, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Uh, And Ignited is simply, I don't have a hat right here, but it's I-G-N-T-D. I try to be clever with the name of the company and take out some vowels. And all I've done is confuse the shit out of most people that I talk to. But (laughs) as a uh, a branding expert, I could talk to you about that. (laughs) I-G-N-T-D is is how you spell Ignited. Um, But I'm, you know, saying I'm everywhere is is not quite right but if you look up dr ad jaffe i'm pretty much the only one that comes up so um it's pretty easy to find me that way thank you thank you for your time for your attention for your energy for what you're doing in this space um funny you you know you talk about a tiny sliver of people um you know i i have this idea that actually if we all could just help one person Mm. each you know done it'd be done then then fuck <laughs> yeah it would just be done so that's you know, it the fa- amen the fact to that, that you're helping tens of thousands the fact, the fact that you want to expand this proposition mm. you know you know you, you have uh, all of my love and support and i'm sure thank you and to be fair it takes all the people who help us our coaches maddie who's my right hand person who's been helping me for almost four years now and you know obviously the support of sophie and everybody else who's come before me it's it's it all builds on itself 
Mm. Well, long may that rain, and we uh, we hope to speak to you again. Thanks yeah, so much. Thanks so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.